There are so many stories that are about the nature of being human, and we get to this right at the very end with Dr. Carbio, which is that you study the past in order to be able to learn a lesson for the future. And the future doesn't look like the past. It's something that I always remind myself. Like, the technology that we have today throws a monkey wrench into whatever gears you might find from the past. But I do think that there's an essence of the human spirit that is always the same from time to time to time. Anyways, you guys are going to enjoy this one. Uh, he's a little rough on Graham Hancock crew. <laughs> but hey, Graham Hancock won't answer our emails. So he's the welcome to come out. The gauntlet is thrown, Graham yeah, Hancock. Graham, come on out and like tell us what we're missing about this story. Um, probably are missing stuff. And uh, yeah, so guys... Email Hancock. Tell them to come do the show. If you enjoy what we do, support us on Patreon. We are at patreon.com slash demystifysci. We thrive on donations from viewers and listeners like you. So if you have a couple bucks to spare, consider joining. We are soon going to get stickers and Patreons. When you join up, get a Demystify Sci podcast sticker. Yeah, plus you get to come just hang out, do our weekly hangouts, and help us figure out what comes next with this. And we're going to end up figuring out how to make this all live and take it on the road and do all kinds of cool stuff. So Tell your friends. Also, if you want to talk about these things, come out to Discord, come out to Facebook. There's lots of places you can discuss it. Leave a comment and we will figure out where to go from here. Enjoy Dr. David Carbayo on Teotihuacan and Mesoamerican civilization. We will see you soon. The scientific revolution starts now. We don't hear a lot about these civilizations in America prior to, I don't know, a couple thousand BC or something like that. But surely there must have been um, stuff going on. And of course, like the glaciation would have taken care of all the stuff up north. But what was going on in that period just to sort of contrast the story of the modern tech of some mysterious technological civilization being proposed by Hancock and others. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, I should say, and, and this is where science is a work in progress always like, um, the first people, the first arrivals into the Western hemisphere, uh, that date has moved back in my own career as being an archaeologist. Like so it dramatically. used to be, yeah, I mean, so, it, you know, it used to be sort of 12,000, 13,000 years ago was the, the first peopling of the Americas or the, you know, the first migrants coming in. Um, and now those dates seem to get older and older. And I, you know, I, it's hard to say what is consensus, but I mean, there's, you know, I feel like there are people like myself who would think, okay, you know, it's likely 20,000 or earlier, and maybe even much earlier. Uh, Paulette Steves is a indigenous scholar from Canada who, who wrote a recent book um, that's called The Indigenous Paleolithic of the Western Hemisphere. And, you know, she proposes there's evidence going back over 100,000 years ago. Now that, you know, it, it is a empirical claim that can be evaluated in different ways um, uh, over time. That, and this is actually where, so radiocarbon dating is very accurate until about 50,000 years ago. And then it gets problematic. It's hard, like the, because the half-life is roughly about 5,000 years, by that time, there's so little 
of the material to detect, it gets difficult. Um, and so then we need to use other dating methods. Uh, there is um, a mass spectrometry technique that can sort of push back radiocarbon dating further, maybe getting towards 100,000. Um, but then the other great radiometric technique that you know, uh, especially paleoanthropologists and geologists use to date some of the earliest rocks in the world uh, is potassium argon dating. That has a very long half-life. And so um, you can't see the decay until um, about maybe half a million years ago. So we have this sort of gap between in the, that. so this would be in the sort of human evolution fossil record uh, between um you know, 500,000 years ago to 50,000 years ago, where you need to have these other techniques. And they do exist. There is forms of luminescence dating, uranium series dating, obsidian hydration dating. Um, and, you know, all, any of those could be taught in a K through 12 curriculum, just the basics, like just, to, you know, people don't need, I don't know it at a high level. I'm not a specialist in those dating techniques. But just to know that, you know, this is the same scientific understanding that brought us nuclear power and, you know, the nuclear age, like we had to understand that these, these principles of radioactive decay. And then Libby, who won the Nobel Prize for applying it to radiocarbon dating, um, showed that this could be used for, you know, this particular carbon isotope. And since life on this planet is, is uh, carbon-based, then, you know, anything that was formerly organic, including humans themselves, the stuff we ate, the animals, the plants, uh, you know, the shells we decorated our bodies with, the, the wood we burned or built houses with, all of that is datable. Um, and so, you know, any archaeologist that sees a show that's not using a single radiocarbon date, like immediately, that's just red flags everywhere. And that's a pseudoscience. Like you need to engage with the tools that have developed over, you know, in this case, since the late 40s, the technique was was developed. I mean, and one of the things those those guys are so good at painting a picture of of what in people's minds of what these pe people, whether they exist or not, lived like and looked like. And it's something I just don't have a sense for about the mainstream archaeological ideas. Is what were these people? What was their civilization like? Are we? Is it inherently bound by the fact that we can only make statements about these like trace organic pieces that we find that we can't put together such a a vivid uh, imagination of their lives or what is it? Because I, I think that's the gap that these journalists are filling in that scientists maybe aren't willing to, you know, science being inherited, inherently conservative and, and really fixated on telling barely a story, but like bringing just the evidence and linking it together. Who um, are the they yeah, here? I mean, so art, you mean like the people of the ancient times? So, so my question was like, who, yeah, because you're saying like we don't have a good picture of who the peoples of the Americas, like during the Ice Ages. Like I, I think that Hancock's whole thing is that the peoples of the America, like Atlantis, is at the center of the Graham Hancock story, right? Like so, a global yes. civilization. Yeah, you stop using the term. But yeah, it's, yeah. Like there's like the, there's a Greek island. There's a race of highly advanced people there. I think they like think it was off the coast of Africa. Or Actually, <laughs> yeah, somebody's gonna light us up for this. Yeah. Um, we haven't we haven't watched the show yet, so. It's like third hand, but oh, basically just post this on Twitter and, and tag uh, ancient <laughs> or yeah. ap apocalypse, right? And you'll see all the trolls will come out. But so um, the so I didn't answer your question about yeah, like what do they look like, right? So or like what were their daily lives like? You're like what kind of yeah. yeah? What were they into? So they're you know this is a big hemisphere, right? So it it depends where they were, um, and so I would say like if you so the original model of the first people to arrive in the Americas 
is is you know associated with a spear point technology called Clovis. And Clovis is this beautifully made large spear point. So you can actually pour over pages of National Geographic reconstructions of what Clovis hunters looked like. Clearly, they're making these big spears. So they're hunting something large. There are large animals at that time, megafauna. So they're, you know, woolly mammoths and woolly rhinos and, and bigger bisons than we have today and, and saber-tooth uh, cats and all that sort of thing. Um, and so, and that often they were depicted in that way. These are largely carnivore hunters moving through the landscape in, in a cold climate. And so they're depicted as, you know, bundled up with parkas, you know, like organically made parkas, of course. But so <laughs> the one site that started to first challenge that narrative is on the, in, on, in Chile, all the way down in the tip of South America, um, called Monte Verde. And that was um, excavated Tom Dillahay, who's, who's at Vanderbilt still. He was the archaeologist who explored that site. There is very solid occupation that is pre-Clovis at that site, and some that might date back as far as, say, 30,000 years ago. So, um, so like, it's pretty solid that 14, 15,000 years ago, there's occupation. And there, there's actually, there's good organic preservation because um, there was wet preservation. So there are some of the stakes of the tent-like houses that they had. Um, and so you can actually, there are reconstructions. If you, you know, Google Monteverde reconstruction, um, you can get a sense of what the houses looked like. And they would have lived in a very different environment. They weren't eating large game like that. They were sort of fisher foragers living, you know, in a, in, you know, a, a, um, a more coastal environment. Um, and, and so, you know, it and they, did they have cities by the way? Are these like cities of tents or are they, oh, they're nomadic yeah. to some extent? Yeah. Or? I mean, I, so I wouldn't say it, by my definition of cities, I tend to have a more restrictive definition of cities. I would say that there are urban centers in the Americas starting around 3000 BC or 5000 years ago um, in places like the Supe Valley of Peru. So if you look at the site of Caral, C-A-R-A-L, uh, in the Supe Valley, imp really impressive monumental constructions, um, certainly urban functions, people like this, th this was a ritual area that served different functions and other parts uh, around it at the time. Um, they still, though, were not really practicing much agriculture. They did grow cotton, and then they turned the cotton into nets to go fish mm. in the Pacific Ocean, which it has the Humboldt Current. It is a very rich fishery, mm. uh, and they were interacting with people who live more on the coast. They were more in the interior, uh, in the river uh, valley, where they could grow cotton. Um, and so these are, you know, fisher foragers with incipient agriculture or more... Um, uh, I guess you could say like more utilitarian based agriculture. They're trying to make goods rather than food. And then they're using that, those tools to then fish uh, and, and get their food that way. Is there um, so some sense that those, those, earlier. those fisher people, is there, isn't there some genetic uh, evidence that there was a peopling from the East as well, to some extent? Like from Polynesian? Yeah. What, what, what was that? Is that in any way associated with the Peruvian cities or? Um, so there. So in terms of the east, I mean that that is debated and that's an unresolved topic. There was like, I think it was. I'm not an expert on ancient DNA. I should say just as a caveat, like, you know, I think there was some in the genome of of uh, 
native peoples who lived around the Great Lakes, that there were some markers that seemed to indicate potential European ancestry. But I think now with more of the genome fleshed out, that doesn't seem to be true anymore. That it really all points to to um, to Northeast Asia and across. Oh, yeah, sorry. By east, I meant <laughs> for them it would be the west. I guess I was thinking like from Polynesia and so Yeah, sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's like. So yeah, no, it does seem to be like more and more genetic studies are you know it, are, are confirming and you know sort of Northeast Asian. Um, origin spot now but i should say that even even for even for peru yeah 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 so i mean crossing over beringia which is where russia and alaska come closest but the difference is uh with the clovis hypothesis it was always envisioned as a land-based crossing these are big game hunters and and they're they're you know they're they're crossing following packs of large animals and so they're on, and and so then people would you know try to reconstruct well was this all ice then what would they wouldn't if there's no ice then there's no tundra for the animals and they wouldn't be crossing and but there's a period where some ice sheets separate and and it's called the ice free corridor and so a lot of the attention was going on that like when exactly is that happening because in everybody's mind it was these are terrestrial based big game hunters. But then as the dates moved earlier and earlier, um, people started thinking, well, couldn't they have come on, on the coasts? I mean, I don't know how close you live to the coasts in Oregon, but there are, you know, sites, of course, since it was the ice age, there were, um, you know, some, uh, uh, many of the ice caps were, had sucked up a lot of the, the, um, ocean water and sea levels were lower. Mm. And so many of these sites then are now underwater and there are, teams of archaeologists in the Pacific Northwest sort of looking for sunken sites. Um, but in this case, I mean, it would be very ephemeral. These would be people, you know, they're not sort of purposefully going out in boats saying, here, America, here I come, right? They don't know it exists there. But just people who um, have some maritime technology and are hugging the coastline, you know, following, uh, you know, migrating species or whatever the food source is, um, and setting up camp periodically, but gradually there's sort of a, a shift into the Americas, and it probably would have been imperceptible to them. I mean, you know, it's it's uh, it's the same sort of environment along, you know, the Beringia. And then eventually, of course, they'd be going into very different environments as they went farther south into California, into to um, the Baja Peninsula. Um, there's uh, some work, uh, Matt Delorier, who, who's in. Cal State University, he has worked in a, a island called Isla Cedros that actually has remains of an early boat, like a sort of balsa raft um, that is, I think, over 10,000 years old. So, I mean, you knew these technologies are actually documented as existing, and you could imagine those sorts of uh, migrations hugging the coast, but we've, we're missing a lot of the sites, but they would have been small sites. These wouldn't have been uh, big cities. They would have been fisher forager populations. And there's a lot of sediment off the Pacific coast as well from the Cascades. And so stuff gets buried over. So you have you have kind of two things fighting against you to create kind of this, uh, you know, obscurity in the ge in the archaeological record because people are, like you say, setting up temporary cities or urban centers or settlements but there's they're also just being covered up actively. Like after Mount St. Helens erupted in the 80s, 
they had to dig out the the channel from the Columbia multiple times because of how much sediment came down the river. And mm-hmm. over the course of 10,000 years, you can only imagine how many eruptions are happening. And it's just, the coast appears so raw. Like it's, there's lava flows, there's ash, there's strong erosion. It just, it, it seems like... And who knows what it was like back then too, to some extent. I mean, the, you wouldn't want to travel down the coast in a... What do you call it? A, uh, a raft of some sort? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't try that at home, kids. Um, it's a brutal coast out here for sure. It's just like yeah. rocks and smashing waves. And So did they bring their culture with them from the East? Do you have any sense? Of, is there like anybody doing anthropological investigations into, into the origins of these peoples or anything like that? There, there have been. I, 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 again, I'm not an expert on this, but I am always fascinated by sort of when you see connections, um, uh, like it, it's hard to know how, how deep these things go, but it just like as some examples, like, you know, many Native American groups, including in Mesoamerica, where it's quite obvious, like they would depict the moon as having a rabbit in it. And there's myths about, you know, that the moon, they, when you look at the moon, it's, it, there's a rabbit, it's not a person. Um, and my understanding is that there also are Asian groups that see a rabbit in the moon rather than a person in the moon. There's also like the association with cardinal directions and particular colors hmm. uh, that is pervasive in the Americas. And that also, so if you think of like a Tibetan mandala sand, painting like that sort of the it's a cosmogram with the the different world directions as different colors and so you see that i mean so those could be like very profound deep paleolithic ways of understanding the world that moved from asia into the americas um did they have cities in asia prior to this at all anything sorry urban centers or anything anything like that no one did yeah at this time yeah i mean so you know some of the earlier places um, Gobeki Tepe, I understand, is in ancient apocalypse. I, I have to mention, I haven't seen the series. I've just read a lot about it. And so um, I, you know, I, I don't want to give uh, Netflix the, the viewership, I guess, you know, like I'd rather do. They don't need it anyways. They're fine. <laughs> um, but, a strong um, case so, for pirating. <laughs> right. Gobeki Tepe, you know, it's hard to say what to call that place. I mean, some you know, it, it was a a, a um, temporary ceremonial center, like a place that people would gather at, and they built monumental, impressive stuff like sculpted stones. Um, is that urban? I don't know. I mean, I even teach a class on archaeology of cities, and and you know, a lot of it is with students sort of thinking about well, what what makes a place urban? What would we call an urban center? Uh, usually, people say it, like it has functions that are are just very different that you can't do in whatever the non-urban part of that region is, right? So, um, you know, baseline, you could think today, like, you know, an urban place has a post office or it has a mall or it has, you know, it has a a, a, a police office or fire station or something like those sorts of, of functions. It has uh, centers of worship, et cetera. And um, it doesn't have food source immediately available. That's what's really interesting, right? Like people in the city get their food from somewhere else. Yeah, oftentimes they can't, I mean, especially once you get really big cities, like they can't produce all their food. And so they require some sort of tax or tribute from a, a hinterland. That's a, a very different, that, when you're having that 
sort of relationships, I, I feel at ease saying that's a city. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's and, um, or, or, you know, like anonymity. So uh, when you get to a settlement size, where not everybody knows you or knows your lineage, knows your people, like knows how to place you. And there's true anonymity. Like that to me sort of defines something that's a higher level, a different qualitatively different uh, type of settlement structure. And I'd feel more comfortable saying, okay, that's really a city. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But so if, the, but you, you, you're not classifying Golbeke Tepe as a city. I wouldn't, but I, some people would. I mean, I tend to have a more restrictive definition. But it's like it's on the border-ish. Yeah, I, I could say it has urban functions. It served urban functions. Is that kind of the <laughs> oldest? Is that kind of the oldest one? Yeah, like how old is What's that? What's that, like 10,000 something? Yeah, yeah, 10, 11. Oh, yeah. interesting. So basically the, 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 the development of these urban centers in the Mediterranean was happening in a way that was completely disconnected from the lineage that was then developing the urban centers in the Americas. Right. After like yes. the people had gone over and everything. Y- yes. Right. People had already come into the Americas by the time Gobekli Tepe was made. Okay. So what in the Americas is the oldest place that is an urban center? Um, so I would say that site Corral that I mentioned, or there are a number of sites in the Supe Valley, which is north of Lima on the coast of Peru. Um, and that's it's an area that's seeing more work. And so there are other possibilities. Corrals just happens to be the biggest um, and it's nicely reconstructed. You can visit it as a tourist. I'd you know, recommend it. It's pretty spectacular to think of, you know, this is a place that was contemporary with the early city-states of Mesopotamia. Mm. Um, and uh, no one hears about it. I mean, it, do- it doesn't receive much attention sort of in in mass media, I suppose. It definitely does in Peru. It's a, it's a point of pride in, in Peruvian archaeology and, and history. Um, did the idea like spread out from there where people, was it kind of like, okay, okay. okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I think people came up with different models for urbanism. The last time I was on this show, we talked about poverty point in Northern Louisiana. Um, now that's later than Corral, but it's still very early. Like it's 1500 BCE and there, you know, it's, all the construction is earthen. They don't have rocks like they did in, in the Supe Valley in Peru. Um, but they made these huge mounds. Like the, the, the main mound there is, I think, second to only Cahokia, which is 2,500 years later um, around St. Louis of an earthen mound construction in you know what is the current United States. And then it has all these sort of concentric ridges and just a very formally organized ritual space again, by hunter-gatherers, not by Mm. agriculturalists. Um, And so we're seeing in areas that, areas that were particularly lush in terms of resources could develop semi-sedentary populations who came together and en masse built really impressive things uh, as their ceremonial spaces. And I would call those, you know, urban places. Maybe not true cities, but yeah, certainly urban. How, how did they organize the, or do you have a sense of how they organized the building of large structures without having an agricultural basis? Um, so, uh, you know, again, this is drawing on the work of my colleagues. It's not my own work, and I, I don't know it super well. But w- something impressive for Corral is that they have these um, 
bags, these netted bags that are called shikra, and the vegetal material that these netted bags were made of came from the Amazon. So it came, they came across the Andes for this vegetal material that then they are sort of making to lattice-like backpacks, essentially, wow. that then they gathered rocks in and dumped in as um, fill for these really large pyramids. Hmm. And then they put a veneer of stones over that. Now, you know, what the archaeologists working there suggest is, so we do know from much later Andean civilization, like the Inca, there's a labor, a corvée labor system called Mita. Um, and uh, there are indications that that corvée labor relation existed prior to the Inca. So, for instance, the Moche civilization that's on the Peruvian coast to the north coast um, in the first millennium common era, uh, there they, all the construction is made out of mud brick. And many of the mud bricks have stamps with, with signs in them that seem to be like maker's marks mm. so that the interpretation is that different kin groups or different neighborhoods of the city were providing a certain amount of labor and they could say, look, these are all our bricks, we've marked them. And so um, the, the suggestion, now we're moving back even earlier in time to get to, to Corral, is that this Shikra construction is some sort of labor accountability saying, look, our group filled 100 bags of rocks and contributed to building this. And so it's sort of a receipt of that, you know, you, you contributed in this way. So there must have been some sort of trade systems in place before these centers even came to be, if people were already acquainted with the idea of trading, you know, using labor in order to achieve something. I, I mean, I, I assume they were getting something in return. They weren't s slaves or maybe they were slaves. Yeah. I don't know. No, I don't, I don't think there's an indication of that. I, I mean, I think... Again, you know, last week we talked about, or whenever I was last on, it's not quite last week, but, um, you know, that when people are building something that they see as working for them, working for the community, a public work that everybody can have access to or can benefit from, at least in some way, then they'll build really impressive things. I mean, humans have done that throughout history. Um it's, you know, you see more exploitative labor practices when it's building for the needs of the few, right? So building a palace, building an elaborate mortuary complex for a dead king, that's very different than building a temple that the community agrees is useful for ensuring that the world continues or that the, the rains come for the crops or, or what have you. Those are like public goods concerns. And early on, you know, relatively small-scale societies, if they're committed to it, I think, um, can can put forth that labor. You think there was like a priest class that was directing that that initiative? I, I would think in a place like Corral, um, yes, that would be likely. There would be people sort of acknowledged as, as uh, leaders. They might have you know, had, you know, so, I mean, I'm drawing on what we know from sort of less hierarchical yet complex societies ethnographically, uh, people who have what we'd call achieved status rather than ascribed status. So they've demonstrated their worthiness to the community. So sometimes they're great orators, they're, they, you know, they, they're, they're diplomatic, they solve problems well, they compel people, they have charisma, um, they can predict eclipses. <laughs> they, can, they can predict eclipses. Yeah, so that comes along with maybe some knowledge, like that. You know, there could be 
uh, knowledge of how the world functions or, or religious healing or, or other things that the community members find beneficial. And, and so that, that power is bestowed with them. Now, the difference is that they can't get the people to build them a really fancy house, typically that, you know, you know, or, or to, you know, build them an elaborate tomb, they can't pass their title onto their offspring. Um, that would be what we call achieved status. And we don't, we tend to see that later in the mm. sequence. How do we know these things about something like Norte Chico? It's like you look at photo, you look at photographs of what's been excavated, and it seems like there's not a lot of the kind of soft material that you would be able to use to reconstruct social relationships. And so, how do we know these things? Well, I mean, there the preservation is really good. It's like you know the the coast of Peru is is. I think technically a, a desert in terms of the total rainfall. And so there's this great dry preservation. So the fact that you have this like vegetal material from the Amazon that's close to 5,000 years old is pretty amazing. Um, and then that can be directly radiocarbon dated. So can the bones of, you know, the, any burials there. So can the, the fish that they were eating and the mollusks that they were eating, all of that can be dated. So in terms of just chronology, that's pretty easy. You know, what we don't see, I, what I haven't mentioned for um, actually either Corral or, or uh, Poverty Point is pottery. None of, none of them made pottery vessels. They made little amulets. They made like clay figurines, but they were using baskets and they were just using hide. They had different material culture in terms of like food storage and, and preparation. And the pottery making cultures come along later. So, uh, so we often have that. So like in the Near East, that's called the pre-pottery Neolithic, um, it, where there are these impressive developments uh, like Gobeki Tepe. Um, and uh, they um, call it in Peru, they call it the cotton pre-ceramic. So it's they know that they were growing cotton, but there, there, there are no pottery. Uh, there is no pottery yet. So that could inferentially, that could mean that they're not settled. Like people st tend to start making pottery when they're going to stay in one place year round because you don't want to, so you know, schlep all the pots around <laughs> with you. <laughs> so having a more portable material culture is good if you're residentially mobile. When do you see the pottery showing up in Central South America or whatever? Yeah, any I mean, North America? I, well, let's see. In the Americas as a whole, I think... The okay. earliest is around 2500 BC, uh, BCE. So that's, um, and then it, you know, it sort of varies what area you're talking about. You tend to get it on coasts more. So actually in the U.S. on the coast of Georgia, there's some really early pottery. Hmm. Um, in Mexico, uh, where I work in the Pacific, it's about 2000 or so. Um, I'm oh, actually, yeah, in, in South America, in Ecuador, the Valdivia culture is, is, um, actually has maybe the claim for earliest pottery using society. And were these springing up independently or were they in contact with the Peruvian civilizations? Oh yeah, they're independent. Yeah, different. Re and I mean, pottery actually, you know, so people used to think the Jomon culture of Northern Japan was the earliest pottery in the world. But now there's some, been some recent dates from China that go way back, like 19,000. Whoa. Yeah. That's crazy. That's incredible. Okay, so that's actually really interesting that you mentioned China because we kind of talk about this a lot where there is an entire body of literature that is locked away 
in Chinese that isn't translated. There's a language barrier. There's a language barrier. It's very difficult to research anything about ancient China. And so... For us. For us, yeah. I'm sure (laughs) that there's like publications where you can find it, but I I wonder, because for there to be a pottery-making group, you you said 19,000, not 1,900, right? Right. That's pretty early if we're talking about the first settlements in the Americas being... 5,000 or uh, 5,000 years ago. Yeah, no, I mean, in fact, you know, so that, that means that pottery existed in North Asia um, around the time the first people were arriving to the Americas. I mean, they might've been aware that you can fire clay. I mean, that actually, you know, it just remember that ancient peoples, especially, you know, foragers, hunter gatherers are, are really reliant on fire. It's your it's your warmth. It's your light. It's your cooking fuel, um, and so it's not too hard. You would build a fire in an area that had clay near it, and it, it's pretty obvious that. So it's really not an intellectual breakthrough. It's just like a you know, at what point is it worth investing mm. time in doing this and then having all this stuff accumulated? And that's usually once people develop farming like full farming and they're tied to the landscape like they you know they they have property that they tend to and so um they're going to stay in one place and then they'll start making pottery um i guess exceptions to that would be these really lush often coastal environments where there's just so much marine life that they're eating you know mollusks and and fish um locally and they don't really need to move and so that they also could develop pottery mm-hmm. but you have to have a commitment to just staying put so what are some of the first civilizations that you see in central america cropping up the the civilizations that end up becoming um you know the famous ones with the big pyramids and everything yeah so the, i mean the funny thing in Mesoamerica compared to like the two areas we've talked about, like, you know, the Supe Valley in Peru and the Louisiana Bayou, uh, you know, or Poverty Point type area. There's even earlier mounds now documented, like going back to around the same time as Corral 3000 uh, BCE in, in Louisiana. So there are these rich coastal or riverine environments. Mesoamerica, um, in contrast, has a more standard development, like their sequence looks a little bit like the classic model of development in the Fertile Crescent, that Mm. first there's agriculture, and then it takes a few thousand years of village living before you start getting the first urban centers. And so, you know, when we see the first urban centers in Mesoamerica, um, that are at least, you know, large ones, like we have ones that are, uh, you've maybe heard the term Olmec, the Olmec culture, um, its center is is in the southern Gulf of Mexico region. There are places that are, have urban functions earlier, they have like, a limited amount of public buildings, they they have ball courts, like for the Mesoamerican ball game. Hmm. Um, But they are just sort of like large villages. But by by the Olmec period, you get things that you would clearly call towns or even cities um, that uh, had thousands of people living in them um, and had very large monuments and really elaborate art, uh, elaborate stoneworking. And in terms of the evolution of their culture, what are those monuments and what are their, like, can you tie their figurines or their culture back to anyone before them on the continent or... Yeah, where did 
Where did they come from? Where did they get these? Do they resemble anybody else at all? Do they resemble uh, the Peruvians? No, not really. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a it's a local tradition. You do tend to get like so. The earliest art is pretty naturalistic. It depicts humans and animals, like the animals are eating and and figurines depicting people. Um, and then with the Olmec style, it gets much more stylized and abstract. And so it starts with just, you see etching on pottery that has these motifs um, that uh, might, you know, likely relate to abstract cosmological principles. There's arguments that some are sort of an earth sign, some are a sky sign and relate to sort of, you know, primal uh, beings, supernatural entities. Um, it then gets, you know, so ceramics is the first way that this style is circulating. And that's something that, you know, more people can participate in, although like you'd need to know this, you know, what is the, the code here? What, what's the, what's the, um, the, the cosmology underlying this, you know, symbolic system. Um, but then, you know, as the sites get bigger, you, you also see in places like San Lorenzo and then La Venta, which are the two big Olmec capitals, um, really elaborate sculpture. So famously the colossal heads, you know, that are, are, um, these massive many ton, uh, um, uh, basalt carved heads that are very naturalistic. It looks like, you know, a person wearing a helmet They're you know, no two are identical, even though they come in like a cannon. Um, and so those people think depict actual people, powerful people, leaders, chiefs, um, some sort of ruler. Mm. And the the ability to actually carve those stones, like, is that something that you see uh, over the course of the civilization where at first you see rough figurines and, and craftsmanship that isn't quite so advanced? And then from that emerges the ability to make these enormous basalt heads? Or is it that the smaller stuff has been it hasn't been found yet? Um, there, yeah, there has been one workshop excavated, um, hmm. and so there's a sense of, yeah, the development of this, of this style, but, it, you know, I should say it is anomalous that the, you know, that the Olmec style is so natural. It's one of the more naturalistic styles in all of Mesoamerican history or all of, um, uh, you know, early indigenous America's history, um, it's rivaled sort of by later Maya classic art or um, Aztec art in terms of its its naturalism. So, what is what is naturalism in opposition to? Uh, well, either being stylized, geometric, um, so something that's you know more naturalistic, meaning that you know it 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 is a more faithful image of what our eyes are seeing so mm. like that person looks looks human rather than a little blocky or a mm. little more it's abstracted. not it's not picasso i see <laughs> right but so i mean so teotihuacan for instance is a style that is more abstracted or more stylized uh, more geometric than mm. the classic maya or the later aztec in central mexico and in terms of chronology in central uh, in Mesoamerica, it's Olmecs and then Teotihuacan, or there's there's more stuff that's in between them. Yeah, I mean, there's a it's a rich area culturally. So, um, so there's the what we call Olmecs, and I should say that you know that label is an imperfect label. It's it's what Aztec people called um, ule or oli is rubber. Rubber is indigenous to uh, this lowland area of Mesoamerica and into the 
into the Amazon. It's a it's a lowland American uh, tree, um, and so it basically it's, it's a reference to the people of the land of rubber. But it's from the much later Aztec civilization. We don't know what they called. What were they making out of rubber? Balls, yeah. Uh, right. I mean, so balls like to play the ball for game. the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's some fascinating work. Uh, my colleague here across the river, Mike Tarkian, who's at MIT, has done things with um, mixing percentages of latex, the sap that comes out of the tree. Um, and um, there's uh, a particular vine. I'm forgetting the name, but I, you know, I think it, it might be in the nightshade family uh, that they're mixing in with it. Uh, and it it has a chemical reaction that is akin to vulcanization. So it gives it more elasticity and more durability. Mm. And you would play with the recipe depending on what you wanted. So obviously you want a ball to be very bouncy and, and springy, um, but you want to use you know rubber that uh, holds a knife blade made of stone into a bone or wood antler mm. to be hard, and that could be more brittle. And so you change the recipe there. Um, people made the soles of sandals uh, out of rubber. Um, and so they had lots of, of applications for it. And, and this is, um, uh, yeah, um, so that became a big industry. Actually, even prior to the Olmec, there, you know, there's ball cord at, in the Pacific coast of, of Mexico that is a few centuries before the Olmec civilization. And that just stayed throughout the sequence. So for, you know, four, well, 3,000, 3,500 years, people are still playing Mesoamerican type ball games in Mesoamerica today. Um, there's a huge variety of them. There's, you know, classically, you'll see the hip ball game where uh, the the ball would hit a marker or hit or go through a a, um, a ring on the, the ball court. But there are lots of others. There are ones that look more like field hockey with sticks. There's ones that are more like handball, um, hitting the ball with a smaller ball with your hand. Uh, so, yeah, Mesoamericans really gave the Americas team sports, right? <laughs> yeah. The World Cup is happening right now, and um, so people are thinking of that. Did anybody else pick up on that? Were they trading uh, far and wide? I know that, like, the Iroquois had lacrosse. Hmm. Were, were the, were yeah, the right. So the northern woodlands of the U.S. Uh, had lacrosse. There are ball courts in the American Southwest, uh, and so the Puebloan ancestral Puebloan peoples had a variety of the ball game that looks similar. It has the parallel mounds like Mesoamerican ones do. There are also ball courts in the uh, Caribbean. So they seem to have had probably, that probably was a diffusion process, contact trading with, with the Caribbean and the Southwest. That's so cool. Yeah. Like, is there a sense for how interconnected these contemporaneous cultures were? Cause I mean, like trade is one thing, but did they know about each other and without necessarily trading? Like, are there like one-off artifacts that are ever found that are out of place that could be from somebody, you know, who traveled by themselves and like brought back a souvenir or something? That's always hard to say. I mean, it's, it's really, um, it's uh, fun to speculate about, but like the one, one example that comes to mind is um, Spyro is a site in Eastern Oklahoma. It's a wonderful uh, um site that you know would be classed as Mississippian period um, and it has mounds but um, within those mounds is very rich uh, art and offerings um, like uh, uh, you know these um, well really nice ceramics effigy uh, ceramics and and um, uh, pipe stones and uh, shell gorgets having this rich iconography 
uh, of the Mississippian region. Um, and that it, you know dates to you know, roughly around 1200 or so of the, of the common era. And there was one scraper, like a hide scraper made of obsidian that's from the same obsidian source that Teotihuacan and the Toltecs and the Aztecs used in central Mexico. It's very distinctive. It's this green obsidian. And, um, and, and so, um, you know, it's easy to tell that it came from there just optically, but chemically it is also, I think, a match um, to that source that's known as Sierra Las Navajas or the Pachuca obsidian source. So how did it make it up there? Was there one sort of Toltec trader going up into that area or was this sort of just slow down the line trade like we know that the Toltecs were trading up north for turquoise but that's more in the sort of southwestern uh area um and uh but perhaps you know some of this obsidian was making it up that way and then people from the southwest were trading with the plains that made it to spyro a little hard to say if it's what would be called down the line trade or um you know direct trade um, I do know for the like the Hopewell culture is a really fascinating uh, culture about 2000 years ago, um, focused in southern Ohio. And there you get stuff from all over the continental US, like you get grizzly bear teeth and obsidian from the Rockies, you get um, uh, marine products um, from the Gulf of Mexico, uh, you get shark teeth from like the Atlantic coast, um, you get metal from the Great Lakes region, um, and it, it sort of descends into Ohio, and it, there it doesn't seem like there are many intermediary points, so maybe there are people making pilgrimages as part of this trading circuit, or or there's just these larger caravan type systems. Yeah, I hope well, I grew up in Ohio, and so that was kind oh, yeah. of the the lore that I grew up. And I always imagined these vast networks of really different, interesting people that were, you know, developing this land before anybody got here. It's also wild because Ohio was basically a big forest back then, from what I understand, mm -hmm. and uh, it's basically a cornfield now. <laughs> and so it was always really interesting as a kid to imagine what it must have been like for for those people in such a different time. I think the whole continent must have been a really different place without all of the, you know, changes we've brought upon it in our times. Yeah. Um, you know, who knows what, what the, what the travel court, what the highways were like back then. But <laughs> Yeah. Uh, my, uh, my thought when I start thinking about the sort of the way that the landscape has changed is that there, there are things that have changed, but that it also is maintained because it's like places that are good to live are going to remain to be places that are good to live. Like there's a river nearby or there's a coast or there's a lake or something like that. And you do get these massive changes. Like I think that the the 12,000 years ago, the, the Ice Age changed things pretty precipitously in terms of what's habitable and what's not. But outside of that, the places that were temperate, like do we have a sense that these sites tend to be continuously inhabited or they spring up and then they get abandoned and then they're just kind of erased into the landscape until somebody finds them. I suppose it depends. I mean, so one site I can think of that's really long lived through what's known as the archaic period. So the archaic period is sort of, you know, um, after the ice age. Uh, and so you're in the Holocene geologically, um, it, but before farming, um, and there's a site called Coster in Illinois. And here, I mean, this is, you know, like a, a great place to live. It's, it's floodplain, it's very rich. And so, 
you know, as hunter gathers, then there's animals, there's fresh water, um, and it's a desirable place. And there are many thousands of years of occupation. It's one of the longest archaeological projects actually in the U.S. has been working through levels at Coster. So that gives you a good glimpse into um, the sort of transition towards farming, um, but, a, you know, sort of a not necessarily purposefully driven, but like the thousands of years between the Ice Age and, and the arrival of, of maize into that area. Um, in other areas, I suppose it, you know, it depends, like people don't always find a city in the most um, environmentally desirable location. Like a good example of this would be uh, in Oaxaca. So we mentioned the Olmec, the Zapotec, so there are, our Zapotec is actually a, you know, a, an ethnicity today. There are um, over a million Zapotec speakers, uh, and that's actually an Aztec term for them, uh, and, and, but Zapotec communities will use new or other, other terms for their, their communities. Um, and uh, they created a, a great um, pre-Hispanic capital at Monte Alban, which is just near Oaxaca City, if you go to uh, Oaxaca today. And there, you know, the earlier settlement was on the valley floor in what would be the best growing land for farming. And they chose this hilltop location and uh, specialists debate exactly why they chose it. But it, it would have meant, like going back to earlier in the conversation, that they couldn't produce all their farm, all their food locally. They needed to draw on a larger catchment area for for food, but it must have provided some advantages. Some people think it was, you know, either defensible or a way that they could survey the valley and control it politically. Um, others think, you know, it might have been more for ritual religious purposes, but it wasn't the best land. Um, mm. But that ended up being a very long, one of the longest, you know, lived Mesoamerican cities. It's occupied for 1200 years. And then after its decline was still used as a necropolis for very rich uh, burials. So, so I suppose it, it depends, like everything. I mean, there's always, you know, there's uh, would, cases that, that support that and others that don't. I mean, how much is missing still, do you figure? I know that that's kind of like a what are the unknown unknowns question, but do, do you have a sense from what you've seen excavated and what you've seen maybe with LIDAR studies or your own sort of perception on the situation, like how much of the ancient settlements have we actually discovered versus how many are there? Um, I think it depends on time period. So like when we're talking about the first settlers in the Americas that leave this very ephemeral trace, their sites are going to be, you know, deeply buried or, 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 or more, much more difficult to find. I think there's a lot more to discover in terms of just locating the site. Um, so, you know, locating the site is part of the, the story for archaeology, but then really understanding it and trying to piece together, you know, the why of, you know, why did it exist? How are people making a living here? What was life like? Um, that really, I mean, there'll be no end to that. And, and, I, and that's partially why I think we need to be teaching the methods at some level, even in a K through 12 curriculum. So like just understanding, you know, how do we know that this obsidian or this, or this, you know, metal or, or whatever the resources came from this place. How can we tell that chemically? Like that's their chemical analyses. How can we tell what people ate um, just based on different stable isotopes in their bones? Like 
these are fascinating methods and they're rapidly developing and they're giving us a much better toolbox for understanding the past. Um, and so that's, you know, that's fun. It's like, it's it, like, I think you could engage lots of people into science fields by saying, well, here's the, the applications. We can understand ourselves better, the history of humanity better. Yeah, I think that's what it's all about is people really want to understand themselves. They want to know where they came from, where where did the country, where this, what was happening on this land before I got here. And I think like the more vivid picture that we can we can paint for kids, the more engaging it's going to be really. Mm-hmm. What do you, uh, so what, so we were talking about uh, the evolution of the cultures and societies in central uh, Mesoamerica. You have something like your favorite place, this uh, Teotihuacan. What's going on? Does that just appear out of nowhere? Is it? Uh, does is there something going on beforehand? What? How did? How does a big city like that just pop into existence? Okay, well, that now we're something I know. <laughs> so I'm happy to answer that question. <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, you know, a lot of my career is focused both on Tejokan, but then also what came immediately before it. So we call that period the formative period in central Mexico. And it's it's sort of once you have established farming villages, and we've excavated some of those that go back to about 1000 BC in the area. and um, and then the development of smaller towns. So I worked for six or seven years at a pre-Teotihuacan town that um, is, uh, you know, it had its own little pyramids and plaza and ball court. Um, there were much bigger ones that were contemporary to that. There were places that I would actually call a city. So for instance, in the southern basin of Mexico, on the southern fringe of Mexico City today is a site called Cuicuilco. And that um, for me, is the first true city in central Mexico. Uh, it maybe had 20,000 people living in it. It had these big pyramids. They're weird because they're round, and that's not a typical building style. There are some round pyramids, but um, in West Mexico, they had some round pyramids, and there might have been some ties with those folks over there. Um, but it does seem to have been, you know, central Mexico, where Mexico City is today, was historically a crossroads between in Mesoamerica, there were, you know, people from the east, from the Gulf, from more humid tropical areas. And then this is this large high plains. Um, are, are they, and are they bringing that Olmec, some of those Olmec traditions in and some of, are they, are there the Peruvian influences yeah. coming no, up? Were, no, so not Peruvian, but there were Olmec um, sites in central Mexico. One of the interesting things though, is they had very different uses of the art. So they made things in the same style, like th- these, you know, sort of um, where, like people call them where babies, like, so they look like part jaguar, part baby, they have wow. big cheeks and snarling mouths. And it's a like sort of distinctive art style. They would do things like that. Um, but the narratives tended to be much more mythic. We can't sort of identify necessarily, okay, here's a ruler. They seem to have been dealing more in these abstract religious concepts. And that continues in Teotihuacan. So again, if you remember, like in Teotihuacan, we haven't clearly identified a ruler. So there was just a different way of framing power and, you know, one's place in the world uh, in central Mexico um, through the formative and into the classic period, things change with the collapse of Teotihuacan. It gets a little more individualized, associated with the small city states that rose 
after the collapse of Teotihuacan um, and interactions with the Maya area that also had this more sort of individualized art and way of recording history through hieroglyphs. Um, but yeah, we can see that really clearly. And so, you know, one thing that's a, you know, that I, I've focused on some are the origins of certain deities that we see prior to Teotihuacan. So there are definitely two that are prominent in the first millennium uh, BCE. There's the storm god and the old god of fire. And they're sort of, this is, it's like a, an important dualism in central Mexico, fire and water. Um, it's uh, um, used metaphorically for many things. It's sort of a creative generative force. The main Aztec temple had the storm god paired with Huitzilopochtli, who's this solar god. There always was sort of this coupling of, of you know, these two primal elements. That goes back way, you know, into the first millennium uh, BCE. They also, you start seeing uh, trends in urban planning. So uh, in central Mexico, the typical arrangement starts to be that your major pyramid is to the east looking west. And then maybe you have a second pyramid to the north looking south. I, where I excavated in this site, La Laguna, before Teotihuacan, they had that arrangement. Teotihuacan has that exact arrangement. Now, it's very different. It's on a, you know, a totally different scale, much larger, and has this large avenue, the Street of the Dead between it. But we can see certain principles in urban planning, like being converged upon by different communities. And then there's sort of a grand synthesis in Teotihuacan, which takes it in all sorts of new directions. And all without centralized leadership somehow, which is very... Uh, well, no, uh, Teotihuacan... Or hierarchical leadership. Okay, okay. But I think it it was less individualized. So mm. it, was, it was more maybe bureaucratic, more mm. corporate. There might have been more decision makers. And, you know, we can look to later central Mexico for some some models here where there were sort of ruling councils. There are systems of co-rule where two to four different rulers uh, or different you know, heads of state converged on decisions. It could have been something more along those lines than the classic sort of God-King model of, say, classic Maya civilization or other, you know, pharaonic Egypt. Hmm. I want to go back uh, real quick to the evolution of the gods that you mentioned, um, like the storm gods and the, the fire god. I had two questions about that. One is, can you trace that out into the other uh, American civilizations? Is there a threat of that? Is it a commonality at all? And then two is, did they peg that to the stars at all? Um, so, they, you know, there are storm god traditions throughout Mesoamerica. They all are somewhat distinctive. Uh, so there's a Zapotec storm god, a Mayan storm god. Um, not surprisingly, they seem to be more emphasized in more semi-arid settings. Like, so the people there who wanted the rains to come, like they were more invested in in uh, the storm god and and uh, made them a, you know, a larger divinity or more central divinity. Um, the old god of fire is, you know, some people have argue that the storm god maybe has roots in the Olmec tradition, Olmec iconography. There are some similarities like the snarling jaguar mouth that you see in it. Um, but that ultimately was a earth uh, deity within what we think was the Olmec tradition. The old god of fire, it seems totally central Mexican. It's like very 
distinctive. It's an old man uh, with sort of a wrinkled face. I don't know if I have any, I have the storm God behind me here, but I, I don't have any old gods. Um, and, you know, hunched over uh, and he has a brazier that you, so one of the cool things is that the earliest ways of depicting these deities was on ceramics that were functional as, so behind me, there's a, uh, a black storm God water pot. So you would actually, you know, it would hold water in it. And he's actually holding another pot, like just to index, and he has a lightning bolt in his other hand. So you really know it's the storm god. Um, and then the old god of fire has a big brazier on, you know, on his head or sort of by his back that, you know, he's, he's supporting up Atlas-like. Um, and that they would burn fire in. So, like, there are functional, you know, engagements with these particular elements. Um, and it continues all the way through the Aztec sequence. You see, you know, the storm god is very prominent. The old god sort of morphs into something else who's like the old guy in the center of the universe, um, but um, they're really central to all the offerings in the Aztec Temple Mayor, their their main temple. And, and you can imagine there being some convergence there, right? Like even in Mesopotamia and like the Canaanite traditions, you see the storm god being prevalent and it just seems like it would make sense that people would be staring at the same phenomena or negotiating the same crises on a civilization level. Um, yeah, it is. It's fun. one of my colleagues who works in the Eastern Mediterranean mentioned that once, and she, but she was saying it's just interesting how some societies really emphasize the storm god and some don't at mm. all. And and um, but yeah, there are other societies that emphasize storm gods. I mean, in fact, that is often then becomes the king of the gods because the storm god is in the sky; it throws light. So think of you know Zeus and Jupiter; they have these storm-like attributes. Um, you know, in the early Judeo-Christian God or the God of the Old Testament speaks in a thundering voice. Like, so there are some proposals that it sort of came out of uh, the tradition of of Baal, which is a Phoenician storm god. Yeah, and it's it's one thing I also noticed is just that everybody's seeing the same thing happen in the sky at night too. And so a lot of the myths that come out of telling the story, you know, of of Venus and um, you know, of the moon and these things, they, it makes sense that people would come up with kind of similar stories. Do you see uh, these, do you see any of the gods being pegged to the astronomy at all? Yeah, definitely. But I mean, an interesting difference is, so for, um, in Mesoamerica, Venus was the feathered serpent. So Quetzalcoatl to the Aztecs, Kukulkan to the Maya. I don't know if you saw Wakanda forever. There's Kukulkan Oh, you, you should see the new um, Black Panther movie. There's a Kukul Khan character. But in any case, that's the feathered serpent. Um, and um, that's the embodiment of Venus. Uh, and um, that's quite different than, say, you know, the Greco-Roman tradition, where since Venus was close to the sun, it was perceived as a consort of the sun and gendered feminine. And that's that's different than the Mesoamerican tradition. Mm. Um but they did know, I mean, Mesoamerican peoples realized it was one celestial body. So they didn't sort of say morning star, evening star. They tracked it very closely. They knew that the cycle was 582 or 83 days. So that's like the appearance cycle for, for Venus as it's in the morning, it goes away. It's in, in the night sky and, and it goes away. And they were fascinated by that cycle. Um, and I forget if I mentioned last time, but there's, you know, good evidence that a lot of the major cycles that people in Teotihuacan cared about were encoded into buildings, into the major uh, pyramid complexes of the city. 
Um, and this, uh, the work uh, of um, a colleague, Saburo Sugiyama, who's worked on trying to determine what the standard unit of measurement was at Teotihuacan, and I think has a very good case that it was 83.3 centimeters. Um, it's not just totally out of the blue. We have Aztec parallels of there being like the Aztec yard was sort of from your hands to your heart. And that was used as one of the standard units of measurement. And there were others, but that, you know, is roughly about 83 centimeters. And once you, and then, then also when you look at Teotihuacan, um, there are many things that are just measure 83 centimeters or there are ratios of it. So like um, staircases are often in nice geometric ratios where the balustrades are some divisible ratio of what the steps are. Um, and once you start playing around with those numbers, the sun pyramid is 260, which is the ritual calendar in Mesoamerica. The moon pyramid, when it got monumental, was 105, which is the remainder to make the solar year of 365. And the big citadel complex that has the feathered serpent pyramid at its heart is a Venus cycle, is, is uh, 582. Where do you get the 260 uh, from? So 260 is the is key to Mesoamerica. So Mesoamericans, and it's actually one of the things that sort of defines the culture area, they use two calendars. They observe the solar year, but then they also had a ritual calendar. They used a, a vigesimal system, so a base 20 system. And so for um, for the ritual calendar was 13 months of 20 days. Uh, and that the Aztec's called the Tonal Poali, the count of fate. And the solar year was 18 months of 20 days. And it was as the Shumo Poali, which is the count of days. Um, that gives you 360. And then there was this sort of five-day remainder around that was sort of like a, a, a period where people just hung out at home. You didn't do anything, you know. Um, I mean, it was... That sounds nice. Like, <laughs> <observant>. <laughs> yeah. um, you didn't want to rock the boat too much. It was like a transitional <laughs> New Year period. And they would even, they knew to intercalate too. So they knew that every four years, that period was going to be six days instead of five days um, so that they were keeping the solar calendar going. But in any case, those two cycles were key to Mesoamerican life um, and they would come together every 52 years. And so that sort of for Mesoamericans was like a century and the Aztec calendar would often measure time in, in terms of the 52 year cycle. Um, there was a huge sort of rite of passage ceremony um, every 52 years. Uh, and that really seems to have been key and central to Teotihuacan. Like it might've been the, the first city that really elaborated the calendar round as sort of a place for pilgrimage and those sorts of events. And so, you know, they encoded those all throughout, you know, the architecture and, and um, into elements of, of sculpture, the big braziers that's associated with the new fire ceremony that you would have. Um, but why 260? Why 260? That's such a strange number. Does it, uh, so yeah, there, there, I think two reasonable hypotheses for 260. Um, one is, so we already talked about there being like a most early until the French revolution, right? Most people measured things in an, um, anthropocentric way, right? They, they use the human body, right? So we still have in English, we have an inch that's like the joint of your thumb and we have a foot, et cetera. Um, and those are older ways of measuring things in proportion to the human body. Um, and one idea for 260 is if you have a vigesimal system, if you're using a base 20 system, 
it's the closest to a, a human gestation period that you could get. Mm-hmm. So, so one idea is that it comes from that, the creation of a human, and that that's important. Um, the other is that it has to do with Venus. And so Venus, like the times that it's visible are sort of close to 260. Um, and so mm-hmm. it's, you know, if they were really focused on that, they maybe wanted to bring that cycle and try to reconcile it with the solar and lunar ones. Yeah, that's interesting because then Ven- Venus disappears for a week or so. And I-, I think there's a lot of underworld myths tied to this in all, all cultures, like all across the, all the way back to the Sumerians and so forth, which is kind of interesting. I, I assume mm-hmm. the, I assume the Teotihuacan had a, a similar story. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. So, I mean, actually another thing I should mention is the alignment of Teotihuacan, the, where the sun pyramid looks, where the sun sets from the sun pyramid or, or where it rises, it doesn't really matter. But what, what the grid system does is divide the year into 260 and 105. Mm. So um, you'll see sunset there um, on August 13th. And then I think it's April 30th. And that is the intervals between them are 260 and 105. So they really seem to want to make sense of how do you reconcile all these, these ways of counting time, human time, celestial time that makes sense what were they keeping time for that sounds like a stupid question right but people always talk about like we invented clocks and when we had clocks it basically like set us on this path of modernization that has now you know forced everybody to be in this constant hurry but it's like what motivates an agricultural urban center to begin to focus so deeply on the stars is it because it gives you something that you can predict and through those predictions appear to be wise? Do you have, do you have any insight on that? Um, I, you know, so some people say, okay, they want to have an accurate calendar so they know when to plant. Maybe there's something to that, but you know, if you, we do have, like, actually, I think I noticed last week, I read like, what are the best sellers in fiction and nonfiction? The far- Farmer's Almanac was like one or two in nonfiction, right? So people still like the Farmer's Almanac. Essentially, that's what Mesoamericans were doing. They were doing these almanacs. Um, but at the same time, you don't necessarily need the stars to know when to plant or what the sun's doing. Uh, there's other ways like... Um, it, you know, I think like uh, if the leaves of a tree are of this size, that's a good time to plant. Like there are other visual cues from nature that people could um, keep in mind when 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 they're going to plant again, or just observing. Like so, in central Mexico, the gambit is always um, when are the rains going to come? Because the rains are very seasonal, and you once they're coming consistently, you want to plant because then. Um, if your harvest stretches too much into September or October, you can face frosts and hails. So you have this very like limited growing time. And so it's important to sort of get a sense of when the right time is. Um, but, you know, if you plant too early, then you've lost all that, that seed and you've lost your investment there. Um, so I could see some of that argument. But I again, I'm a little skeptical because I think farmers just take cues from like observing nature around them and they don't necessarily need that um but it it seems like you could like run the danger of over rationalizing it too like these people had a very different cosmology like the the world was a very different thing that the things in the sky weren't you know glowing bodies of molten material and so forth like they were 
something else. Everything was very anthropocentric, geocentric. It was like you're trying to tell the story and you have these myths that go along with them, which, I mean, we, it's easy for us to call them myths, but for them, it was probably like, this is how it works. Like, this is how the universe yeah, unfolds. It's the code of life. It's the code of the cosmos. I mean, it's the one thing that you can just keep track of. Like, if existentially, if you're just trying to make sense of what are we doing here on this planet? Like, the best way to observe it, well, I mean, these things that are dominating our lives, like, obviously, the sun is so critical to everything, and um, just watching how it moves, and then, you know, the moon is also doing cool stuff, and then Venus is the next brightest thing in the sky, and so, you know, it. I think it really just gives meaning, mm. like, those cycles are the basis of human religion, largely, I mean, you know, so much of it, um, and the way that we structure our lives and thinking about, you know, our own human time within this bigger cosmic time. And, and so much of religion and mythology is just trying to reconcile those two. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, they're these, the planets in particular are strange, right? Like, especially the, the outer ones from us, you can see them do these weird dances in the sky that don't totally make sense. You know, it's very, people were obviously didn't reconcile the whole geocentric thing for well into you know the the rational period of, of eastern or of of europe and so it's it's easy to imagine how these very predictable but like un- inexplicable motions at the same time um would be important to understand because yeah i'm pretty sure the etymology of planet is wanderer and it's it, in greek or latin yeah that's right. <laughs> i that's shouldn't right. know which language but it it comes from the term for wanderer because mm-hmm. they're doing funky stuff yeah so all right so the the were the teotihuacan is the first real metropolitan area in americas or was this the first real for convergence me, of cultures or yeah i you know i don't of course i i've worked there for 20 plus years i am clearly invested in the place and have an affinity for it. And I don't mean to, you know, say this is the most special place in the world. It is for me. Um, And, you know, maybe you should visit it and see if you agree. But I, I do think you could make the case. It's, it's the earliest like cosmopolitan center of the Americas. I, but again, it's like, you know, what, what does branding it that way really do for you? But, uh, you know, what I could say is that we think that there were, at least five different languages spoken in the city, there was continual migration into the city. So we know this, especially recently through stable isotope analysis of bone. And just the the basic way that that works is that, you know, as we consume water and plants and animals in a particular environment, there are signatures of certain trace elements like strontium is one that's used often, um, but actually people have been working with oxygen and lead isotopes also. And just looking at small, subtle differences in, and usually you sample either the bedrock or the groundwater of different regions. And it's just very subtle differences in the ratios of say strontium 87 to strontium 86. And when we consume like the 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 biome that comes from a particular region because remember in the past it's not like you're not getting your cantaloupes from china or you know like food is largely localized um and that's important for this technique to work um but 
like one thing you can tell is just the is someone a migrant yes or no regardless of where they came from and the way that you can tell that is the difference between the your tooth um or your your teeth and your your skeleton and the reason is because you know as our teeth erupt and develop in childhood and then become covered with enamel they seal in the signature of whatever we wherever we developed wherever we were born and and grew grew up um but the rest of our body keeps flushing through these isotope ratios throughout our lives so if you see an individual that has a very divergent isotopic ratio for their teeth and from the rest of their body you can tell that they moved at mm -hmm. some point from their place of origin so now where exactly they move from gets a little more tricky but many of my colleagues, I'm not involved in this work, but they've, you know, sampled my, uh, um, uh, they've sampled from the project uh, that I, I co-direct in, in, in Tlahinga, uh, in the southern periphery of Teotihuacan. Um, they'll also go around sampling the, the bedrock and the, and the, and the groundwater, try to get signatures for different regions, and then say, okay, this population looks like it came from Oaxaca. This one looks like it came from West Mexico. This one looks like they came from the Gulf of Mexico. Now, we also have that, that's not the only line of evidence that we have. We have artifacts, right? So we know, um, in the case of some parts of Teotihuacan, there are, uh, Gulf of Mexico fish. That had been smoked or salted, so the you know the bones of of snapper and other you know, and we're talking we're up a mile and a half above sea level at Teotihuacan. So these came from the Gulf of Mexico. People must have been salting or or uh, preserving them in some way to bring them up into the highlands. Um, we have cotton couldn't be grown in Teotihuacan, so that had to come from the lowlands. We have. Uh, it, in the case of uh, the, there's a, a, a district called the Oaxaca Barrio or the Zapotec Barrio, where um, there are ethnic Zapotecs living there who carved their own hieroglyphs that are different from the Teotihuacan writing system. They depicted their own storm god. They buried their dead slightly differently than the Teotihuacanos did and continued that ethnic identity. So based on all of those lines of evidence, we can say that at any given time in Teotihuacan, probably something like a quarter to 40% or so of the population was born somewhere else and had migrated to the city. Now for comparison, today the US is about 15% um, not born here, migrant population. But an interesting note, I, if you're listening to the World Cup coverage uh, that, that I saw was that nine out of every 10 um, people in Qatar were not born there. So you have like a range today of like, a, you know, pretty migrant heavy place like the United States is at 15, but Qatar is all the way at 90%. And Teotihuacan is somewhere in the middle at like 25 to 40%. I wonder what New York City would be. It's really interesting. They're probably different throughout the ages too. Yeah. Well. In, in Teotihuacan, do you have a sense for who was it that started building the pyramids? Was it was it something that came along when the city was already pretty metropolitan and had a lot of different cultures that came together, or was there one culture that established the city and then was the the mover and the shaker in terms of building? Yeah, so that's a great question and still not resolved. But I so what was the dominant ethnicity or ethnic identity of Central Mexico? Because the other populations I've been talking about are migrant population. So Zapotecs came from Oaxaca. There are, you know, the Maya came from the Yucatan and Central America. Um, 
Gulf Coast populations might have been Totonac speakers. People from Michoacan would have spoken a West Mexican language. But what was the baseline Central Mexican dominant ethnicity? It probably was not just a single one. Um, at the time of the Spanish invasion, the two dominant ethno-linguistic groups were uh, Nahuatl, or the Aztecs, um, who their descendants refer to themselves as Nahuas, and the language that they speak are, is Nahuatl. And then there's also the Otomis, uh, or, or the Hnyu, which the Otomi is like the Aztec term for them. It's a different language group. It's tonal. I can't speak it at all. I mean, I, I have isolated uh, Nahuatl vocabulary, but it was a really important second, and still is today, um, ethno-linguistic group in, in Central Mexico. It is in the same language family as Zapotec and Mixtec in um, in Oaxaca. So there's some, that language family is sort of tethered to uh, the the uh, central and southern highlands of Mexico. Um, there still are, like, actually, I work with a family at Teotihuacan who uh, are Otomi and speak Otomi. Um, so there still are people in the valley who's, who speak that particular language. Now, why is there debate? Because um, the arrival of, you know, so the Aztecs say that they migrated from somewhere else, else to the Northwest. Uh, historical linguists who've worked on the issue have proposed for a long time that also that it is sort of a more recent incursion. So um, Nahuatl is in the Udo-Aztecan family, which is the largest language family in the Americas. It it spans from around where you are in in you know southern uh, um, like southern Utah into northern California down through the Puebloan uh, languages of of the uh, Southwest and all the way through Central Mexico with Nahuatl being the dominant language, but then even isolated populations getting all the way uh, to um, El Salvador and Nicaragua. Um, when where that originated and how it expanded is still somewhat contested. Um, and um, uh, so, you know, but those, the two dominant hypotheses are that the, you know, the, the main ethnic linguist, ethno-linguistic group at Teotihuacan was either a proto-Nahuatl group, mm. like a precursor directly to the Aztec language, or a proto-Otomi speaking group. But in, and in terms, know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it seems it seems like a difficult thing to pin down. But it's like in terms of building the pyramids, like what is the when you excavate, do you do you find a continuity of of the structure, or is there something that was built that was smaller that something is then built on top? Like, what's the what does it actually look like in terms of the construction? Oh yeah, that's fascinating, and they all differ. All three are different. So yeah. the three biggies at Teotihuacan are the Sun, Moon, and Feathered Serpent pyramids. Um, the Moon pyramid is that's where I started in Teotihuacan, um, and that project was directed by Saburo Sugiyama and Ruben Cabrera, uh, a Japanese researcher and a Mexican researcher, and it involved tunneling. So the pyramid had been reconstructed in the '60s. Uh, I might have mentioned this last time, but it was in anticipation for the Olympics and the Olympic torch was taken up on the top of the, the moon pyramid. Um, but it just sort of was slapped together for tourists. Like this looks like a coherent monument, um, but it wasn't really scientifically excavated. That started in the late nineties and through the two thousands with tunneling underneath it. So you wouldn't damage the, the facade of, of the later structures. Um, and that documented seven different construction phases. And the first three were, quite modest, I think, 
20, 30 meters on a side, little temples similar to the small town that I excavated at La Laguna that was centuries before. Um, and then it got monumental and measured 105 Teotihuacan metric units uh, later, sometime sort of in the, uh, in the, in probably in the 200s. Um, the Sun Pyramid is the biggest. And what's fascinating is when the Sugiyamas excavated there more recently, they found that it's really was built in one construction episode. There were earlier structures there, but they don't look like temples. There's like random walls and, um, you know, maybe some enclosure was there, but it, there wasn't like a big bulk. And so it wasn't, you know, an accumulated, accumulated uh, construction process. The Feather Serpent Pyramid, also the one we see today, the tourists look at, um, it was the smallest of the three, but it's heavily sculpted and it's made in the nicest dressed stone that you find at Teotihuacan. So a lot of attention went into that, working the stone and, and making the sculptures of the Feathered Serpent. Um, that was all built in one, a one-shot deal also. But Sergio Gomez, who recently excavated the tunnel that runs underneath the temple, found sculptures relating to the same theme. So there's like rattlesnakes, tails, and bird headdresses. So there is some mix of like bird, avian, serpent type imagery. So there could have been something earlier there that then was dismantled and they built the new one on top. Yeah, what's up with those tunnels, by the way? Was that done at the same time as the temple itself? Or is that from something earlier? Or have yeah. they been finished with that? What's the story with those? I understand yeah. they've been kind of sealed up and nobody's working on them right now? Or, um, Well, I was just in the one under the Feathered Serpent Pyramid in, in August. It is largely totally excavated. There were last sort of few offerings that uh, the team was excavating. Um, but that was early. Yeah, that was built like it in the first century and into the second century, and then it was totally sealed over. So it has some of the earliest materials from Teotihuacan. Um, it is under it, what it used to be under the water table. So it has wet preservation of organic materials. So it's fantastic. Like mm. there are all these seeds and wood and, um, and animal remains that, that can be very securely dated. There's evidence of interaction with as far away as the Maya. So like there's these big trumpet um, uh, strombus um, shells that would be used as trumpets that are etched in sort of Maya style etchings. There's materials from Oaxaca and other distant regions. So already in the first century common era, um, Teotihuacan was you know, sorry, international or already had these these long distance uh, interaction networks. But from what I heard, the discovery of the tunnel was uh, like there was some storm that happened and the, the ceiling collapsed and then the tunnel was discovered. Is that accurate? Yeah, there was a lot of heavy rains um, and that led to sort of creation of a sinkhole that then they started digging out. And that was this shaft that went down, goes down 15 meters into the volcanic tuff substrate of central Mexico, which is called Tepetate. It's very hard stuff. And remember, you know, they didn't have metal tools, so they had to use these sort of fire hardened sticks to chunk it out. Um, and they did that for over 100 meters distant to go under where the eventual pyramid would be. Do you think that there are other tunnels that haven't been found yet? So there's 
so there is one under the sun pyramid, but it, that one was looted. So the, oh, the no. one under the feathered serpent pyramid um, and, and looted in antiquity, uh, the one under the feathered serpent pyramid was kept sealed. So mm-hmm. sort of like the difference, you know, we're at the hundredth anniversary of the discovery of King Tut's tomb. Um, and, you know, King Tut was this minor pharaoh for Egypt, but uh, his tomb wasn't broken into. And so we saw all these amazing things. For Teotihuacan, that's like the tunnel under the feathered serpent pyramid that remained intact while who knows what was in the sun pyramid one, probably also really spectacular stuff, but that that had been cleaned out in antiquity. Now, another colleague, uh, Veronica Ortega, she using... Um, geophysical perspection techniques in front of the moon pyramid has detected something that she suggests could be another tunnel Mm -hmm. going under the moon pyramid. And so then if that's the case, then that could be another unexplored one. In terms of the the discovery of Teotihuacan, there was this really hilarious meme that was going around, I don't know, probably like a week or two ago, which was this picture of Teotihuacan when it was discovered, which is just this like perfectly flat plain. And then on top of it is just this absurd little hill. And then underneath it is the picture of like excavated. And so it's it's intended to show that it's just this obvious mound on a perfectly flat plain. But from what uh-huh. I saw of the original photos, that's not at all what it looked like when it was discovered, right? Um, it would have been grass covered. I mean, there are even photos. There, so let's see, there are paintings of it that date back to I think the 18th century. Um, I don't. I didn't see this particular meme. I'm surprised because I, I would <laughs> think it would come across my channels. Um, but I, it looked like a big grassy covered hill. That's what the meme looks like. Yeah, I, I thought it was true. But I, I will. Not? I will follow up, and we will. We will I mean, determine if it's what, true or not. What I'm curious about is, is that like, is that what the Aztecs came up in the wake of? What did? Do you think that they had a sense of this was a fallen civilization? Was it was it kind of like a, a skeleton in their closet? Like, what was that like? What did they yeah, see? Yeah, no, I think they knew. Well, so I think they saw it both ways. So there's a lot of myth history from the Aztecs about Teotihuacan. It is the place where time began, where the fifth sun was set in motion, where the gods sacrificed themselves for humanity. But at the same time, they were people lived around the site. People were excavating things, and they actually made offerings of Teotihuacan materials that they excavated in their holiest of holies in the Temple Mayor in Tenochtitlan. So, seeing that material culture, they must have known: okay, these are people who used a technology very similar to ours. So, I don't know how they, you know, um, reconciled the two. That you know, that they, there's sort of a mythic understanding of the of you know the place where. The, the calendar was set in motion, the fifth sun was was created. Um, but at the same time that there were you know people here who had a material culture that was uh, was relatively similar to ours. So I mean for a, a, a similar situation, there's Cholula. Cholula was like contemporary with Teotihuacan. It actually existed even before Teotihuacan um, and continues up to present. It's still a city today. So it's one of the longest lived cities in the Americas over, you know, 2000 years of dense occupation. Um, but the classic period pyramid, which by volume is probably the largest in the world, fell into disuse in this period that like where there was unrest and, um, 
and you know shifting city-state changes, and eventually got covered over with grass. And then the later Cholulteca who lived there at the time of the Spanish invasion, they called it the Tlachualtepet, the, the human-made mountain. Um, and uh, they depict it in codices. So you can actually see painted native books that have this big hill covered in grass, and it's labeled Tlachualtepet because this is the early days of you know using alphabetic writing for Nahuatl. Um, and so, so they are actually iconographically representing it as a very large grass-covered hill, but saying by the name that they understand that it's human-made. Oh, that's so fascinating. It is really fascinating. Yeah, you can, it's tempting to speculate that a lot of the cyclic cosmology came down to seeing these old versions of something that resembled themselves and, you know, trying to reconcile that with where their own civilization was headed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that could, I mean... People have suggested that for the narrative of the five sons that, you know, these were maybe it links to previous known pre-Hispanic civilizations like the Toltecs, Teotihuacanos, Olmecs, etc. I wonder if we would, uh, I wonder if it would change like the arrogance of our civilization if there was just like a crumbled down New York City next to New York City, you know, or, <laughs> you know, if we, we had some way of gripping the past in that like tangible sense. Yeah, like what do you think studying these ancient places offers people? Like, what is the most urgent thing that it brings to people's lives? I mean, you know, there's a, a lot of ways to to think about that. I, I think there's just a natural human curiosity with where we came from. And so, you know, people find meaning in lots of things. I, I find it meaningful to sort of situate myself within these broader historical currents. And, you know, so I've found this career fulfilling doing that. Um, But, you know, I also think there's like clear connections with other popular, I mean, there are indigenous Mesoamericans today who are the heirs, the direct heirs to these traditions. And, um, and so we're having lots of, you know, international debates about how do we treat the remains of the past? Where should they be? What's the role of museums? Um, You know, what's the balance between repatriating things to the countries that they were often stolen from during, you know, colonial endeavors and education or, you know, having uh, museums that display things from around the world. There's all of that debate. Um, And then, then there's sort of what can we learn in terms of just understanding the deep sequence of history. So, you know, if we only sort of look at current events or, or the last couple hundred years of modern uh, societies, we, we have a relatively small pool to draw from of how humans have historically tackled problems in the past, like living in cities, like, you know, dealing with climatic crises. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't say that, like, studying ancient cities is is just going to directly give brand new insights into how to deal with climate change. But you know, I do think that there are 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 lessons from the past. So, like, why did some cities? Why did Cholula, why has Cholula survived as a dense urban center for two thousand years? What did it do to be resilient to to sustain its population for so long? What are the cases that failed? Like, what went wrong in in um, times of crisis? Um, and you know, that is something I've been working on with colleagues in different ways of you know thinking about. Mesoamerican cities and what they can offer us for either dealing with urban issues today, issues of infrastructure, issues of governance and 
and you know trust uh, on the part of a populace and in the broader mission of of uh, uh, you know the the uh, a group affiliation that they have, whether it's a city or a polity. Um, and I do think we there are lessons there. I mean, you know, obviously you got to do climate science, you got to work on policy, but like it is also why I bristle at just the what I think is sort of unethical use of the past of um, just sort of making stuff up and going against like all the basis of empirical knowledge that we have. And I and I get it. I mean, it's not um, it's, again, it's not taught in schools. It's not the fault of teachers, certainly, because it's, you know, it's, but, it, but like when we do an intro class in archaeology, which I've done for many years, you know, there are students who are, are cognitively 18 and they, you know, they, they've come through high school, they, they know a lot. Um, but in terms of their archaeological knowledge, they're they're like a fourteen year old or a twelve year old. I mean, they they there's no foundation there other than oh yeah, I remember the Egyptians, you know, built the Sphinx and et cetera. Like they don't they don't understand the methods. They don't understand how do we put these things in a sequence. How do we use materials to reconstruct um, the human past? And I think if we added some more of that to you know, uh, a K through 12 type curriculum, then we just have a more informed citizenry. Um, and I don't think, I mean, I think the U.S. has particular challenges, uh, to be honest. Like, um, I've gone other places. Uh, for instance, um, Atapuerca is this Paleolithic site in Spain. Um, it's, it, I think it's the richest fossil site for early human remains anywhere in the world yet discovered. And it, you know, has this magnificent rock cliff shelter with the whole stratigraphic sequence. You go on a tour there and you get explained, you know, the actual site. There's a museum to human evolution. There's an interpretive center where you learn to make fire, you know, hitting uh, chert together or um, throwing with an atlatl or, you know, doing these uh, paleolithic type technologies. And what really struck me is, you know, we were there on a Sunday, admission was not free, you had to pay. Nevertheless, there are all these people there just really invested in learning about the past. And it, it was this sort of level of interest that I think um, that we, they, we have a little more trouble with in the US. And part of that is our colonial history. So having something like oftentimes people connect with the past when they feel like that is our past, that, that is the past of our nation. And it and th that can have a really bad side too. Like, so, uh, you know, Hitler used the past for nationalist purposes, right? There, um, and, and so, you know, nationalizing the past can be uh, very, very toxic. But at the same time, it, it gives like a natural buy-in, a natural hook to people. Um, and it, it makes communicating about it a little easier and, and working it into, you know, school curricula a little easier too. And I think that it's more attractive to be able to look into history and not have to grapple with all of the horrible things that your ancestors have done and be able to have this past where you're able to be proud of the the lineage. And I, I just I I think you're I think you're right about the the United States having well, a particularly Well, we're so young hard time. too and we're at the height of our preeminence to some extent, you know, it's like there's nothing to really look back to here in terms of like big powerful civilization or something. Yeah, like I, I often wonder like 10,000 years from now, 
what the culture will be like and like what stories will it be able to tell about itself and how will it how will it deal with the sort of the origins if there are still recordings of it and mm-hmm. i don't i i imagine that you know these things get get glossed over by history given enough time so you can start to tell yourself a different story because you look through the history of of Europe and there's you know there's there's terrible conquests of of the pagans and of the celts and like empires come and they destroy them and there is not really that that same rawness to it because it happened a long enough time ago that it's it's so outside of living memory that people can't hold on to it the same way that we can in the United States because it's so recent. There's not really a question yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's, I, it's, I think it's harder to work on this sort of interest in the aggregate past or the past of humanity can be very abstract. Um, I also think there's a very unique American tendency. I mean, that comes out of this colonial history of ours for, you know, people who are not indigenous to the United States or North America um, to then want to try to create meaning. So what is it? Why are we, what are we doing here? Like, you know, like what existed here earlier? And, and, and I do think that's where these sort of pseudoscience narratives of, oh, well, there was this earlier civilization that we're all related to and that underlies all the continents can be appealing because it sort of it it makes it feel like oh well there's more meaning to be here um and so yeah that might be something we're particularly susceptible to yeah that's a lot to think about i mean one thing i have to say like i feel like if people find us ten thousand years from now they're gonna think we're romans probably if they look at our archi- like our city and <laughs> our 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 judicial buildings and you know the the even our laws are written in Latin largely. I mean, a lot of the legal lingo is in Latin, and you can definitely draw like a line between us and the Greeks, basically, which is kind yeah. of fascinating. But, anyways, um, gosh, this yeah, thank, we've, we've taken a lot of your time today, and I know you've already been out here once, and we didn't get to the Iberian Peninsula too much, but uh, <laughs> you know, maybe down the line a little ways. Yeah. Sure. Do you have any closing thoughts? Um. I just, anyone who's compelled by shows like Ancient Apocalypse, just please engage with the real methods. Like there's no, there's no hidden agenda here. Like we, we want to all be able to collectively have a a basis for making arguments and understandings about the past. And, and uh, there are tools to do that. And so learning a little bit about them can help there. And And I think it really, it creates, you know, a, a very fulfilling way of understanding the world and where we fit in it. Um, and one that, that we can learn from, like, so the past isn't just sort of a, a sci-fi story. Um, it's, it's the story of us and, and it can, uh, help guide us in the future. It's not, it's not, you know, going to resolve all our problems, but it, it creates a much larger data set that we can draw on comparatively and thinking about what might be in the range of possibility. You know, that ties really neatly to something one of our other guests said. Um, Lance Weaver, he works at the Utah State Geology Office. And he came up in a culture that's really Mormon. And so there's a lot of creationism. And he's a geologist. And when he first got into school, he had come from 
this very creationist world. And so he did geology kind of because he figured he would be able to take it in this more uh, skeptical direction. And he said that he was like, I really wish that everyone that I ever spoke to about geology would be able to just take a first year class, like geology 101, in order to be able to understand the methods and the foundations. Because so many of these mysteries and this ability to grab people's imagination comes exactly from what you're saying. It's a lack of, it's a lack of exposure to the basics. And so that's something to think about, too, for the long run. So thank you. Yeah. Well, it's good you're doing what you're doing to demystify these <laughs> fields. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you.